stand as we look to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we come to thee now and we cast ourselves at thy mercy. Oh, Lord, how inadequate we are for these things. How low we are, and yet how high thou art. O Lord, we confess to thee this evening that we are unable to preach the gospel. We are unable to hear the gospel. Lord, we are helpless. We are without strength. So, Lord, in heaven we come to thee, and we throw ourselves at thy mercy. We pray now, O Lord, for a solemnity in this gathering. We pray for every heart and every soul gathered here to be, to be attentive to the word of God. To have their hearts open to hear the message that thou would have to deliver to them. Lord, I pray for the heart of the preacher that it would be open to receive and to deliver the message. And O Lord, that frail man, sinful man, creature of the dust tonight, would be raised up far enough to hear the voice of God. Dead, dry bones would be made to live. Deaf ears would be opened. Blind eyes would be opened. That they might hear and that they might see. Oh, that dumb lips would be opened that they might speak. Oh, come, Lord, we pray. Own this gathering. Own thine own word, we pray. Pierce the heart of man. Save the guilty sinner. We look to thee now, Lord, for power. We look to thee for words. We pray that the words that thou give would be prevailing words. And that, Lord, we would not be disappointed. Grant liberty. Grant utterance in the preaching of the word. O Lord, grant new life in Christ. Glorify thy Son, we pray, for us all for his sake, and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Turn back to the passage in Romans that we read in Romans chapter 5. And we look to God this evening to give help and to give utterance in the word of God as we come to consider this passage this evening. Mankind has a problem. Something is not quite right. Mankind knows that it has a problem. It knows that it has a problem and it is searching about and it is scrabbling about looking for the answer. It can see the evidence of the problem all around it. It can see that something is wrong. <clears throat> the climate change is not the problem. Life from another planet is not the problem. Nuclear war is not the problem. But everywhere we look, on every side, we see the marks and the evidences of the problem that man has. 
We see misery in the world. We see death in the world. Every one of you here this evening, you experience it. Every day you experience the evidence, the symptoms of the problem. Every time you prick your finger on a thorn, every time you stub your toe, every time you experience pain, you know there's a problem. Every time you suffer bereavement, you know there's a problem. In your ill health, in your relationships with others, you know there's problems. Everywhere we look, we see that things are not right. We saw this morning that the cause of Christ has been going forward from the very beginning of time. Well, we saw that God's word showed us that, that that history is mapped out for us from beginning to end. Well, God's word also maps out for us from beginning to end the very solution to the problem that mankind has. That's the whole purpose of the Bible. That's why we have God's revelation, God's word given to us. Ever since this problem began, ever since the first signs of it, the first hints of it, God has been presenting the solution to the problem of his word. When we come to the book of Romans, in many ways it's, it's the clearest and it's the most explicit explanation to all that has ever gone on in the world. Paul, in this epistle, through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he talks about the problems in the world at the beginning of the book. He describes them in detail. He describes the problems that man has. He talks about the responsibility for those problems. He talks about how universal the problem is, how it's Jew and Gentile alike that have these problems. And crucially, in this epistle, he presents the solution to the problem. We're going to take as our text this evening, verse 19. And what we find here in this text is that in 21 words, we have a summary of the entire message of the Bible. The problem is there. And the solution to the problem is there. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We'll take as our title this evening, The Problem Solved. Well, perhaps you're in suspense long enough. The first thing we need to see is that sin is the problem. Sin is the problem that mankind has. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Everything that is wrong in this world can be traced to those words. From the beginning of the history of mankind, this has been held up for us to see in our everyday experience. In the entire history of the world we see it. Sin is real. Death and depravity is real. The world doesn't see sin as a problem. The world doesn't consider it to be like that at all. 
The world will even deny that there is such a thing as sin. I think that's in many ways why there's such a clamour about climate change. As if it's some kind of neutral thing. It's not moral at all. It's entirely natural and physical. And all our problems will be solved if only we could fix the climate. But there's other things too. There's other placebos that they pile their money and time into. Trying to find the problem. And the problem is right in front of them. Trying to solve problems that aren't real. But death and depravity and wickedness and evil and the sin of the heart, that is real. We know that from experience. Every single human being that has ever walked on the face of this earth knows it to be true. <coughs> Thomas Boston, writing in the 1700s, he put it like this. I think we can all relate to this. We can take these words and we can say yes, amen to that. Everyone at home and abroad, in city and country, in palaces and in cottages, is groaning under something or other distasteful to them. Is there anything about this life, men and women, that you don't like? Is there anything about it that's distasteful to you? Is there anything about it that causes you pain and suffering and sorrow and anguish that you wish just didn't happen or didn't exist? Friends, that's sin. And we have this tendency as sinful, fallen human, uh, human race, we have this tendency to blame institutions, to blame governments, to blame schools, to blame hospitals. We blame anyone. And we blame everyone. But the problem sits, friends, this evening, not right there. The problem sits in here. The problem is in the heart of man. Sinner, it's your problem tonight. It's in your heart tonight. Child of God, the problem is in your heart tonight also. Every man and woman and child in this gathering is born into this world a sinner. And we all suffer the consequences of sin. But what is sin? It's defined for us as disobedience. In one word in our text, we have encapsulated the entire problem of sin. Disobedience. It literally means to be unwilling to hear. There's a, a sense of indifference, of carelessness. Not wanting to listen, not wanting to hear. But not wanting to hear what? Well, it's not wanting to hear God's word. Over, over in Hebrews too, we encounter the same word. Used in that very context. Hebrews 2, we, we read there in verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The word of God is what's in view there. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? See what it's saying? The disobedience, the transgression, the sin. Well, it's an unwillingness to hear God's word. But the word is not simply an act of disobedience that's in view. It's not talking about those times when you're told to do something and you don't do it. We've all experienced that. The children in the gathering are experts in that. But that's not what's in view with the word disobedience. It includes that, but it's not only that. 
What's in view here is that unwillingness of heart, not just the outward act of disobedience, but the actual unwillingness in the heart, even if there's no actual act of disobedience itself. See how big a problem that is. One writer put it like this long ago. You have an inclination of heart and a disposition of will to every sin you have not committed. And so have been guilty of all those sins which you have not done. Think about that for a minute. You are guilty of every sin that you have not done. How can that be? It's because your sinful heart, your sinful nature is inclined towards sin. It wants to sin. If there's a sin that you have not committed, it's only because something has held it back from you. It's not because of you. The worst of sins, that is true of you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a familiar definition. It defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's what sin is, friends. It's disobedience to God. It's a, a disobedience in the heart. It's a desire to, to not hear. A willingness, an unwillingness to hear. A willingness to disobey. That defines the nature of the problem. But where did it come from? What's the source of sin? But we read it was by one man's disobedience. How did sin ever enter this world? It's not revealed to us in the pages of scripture how it was that angels fell. We're not told plainly how it came about that there ever was a tempter in the Garden of Eden. But here is what we are told. Adam disobeyed. That, friends, is an historical fact. It's an event that happened. It happened in history. It happened at the beginning of history. Adam disobeyed. One man disobeyed. And verse 12 in our passage here in Romans 5, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. See, Adam and Eve, they were created sinless. But they were created with the capacity to sin. They were capable of sinning. God would have them to be obedient. But he would not compel them to be obedient. And so they were put to the test, as it were. The test of obedience. The trial of obedience. And they failed the trial. Mankind failed God's test of obedience. what was their sin? Well, the first man sinned because he was unwilling to listen to God's command. He was unwilling in his heart to listen to God's command. And so he disobeyed. And there we have that perfect creation with no sin and no suffering and no death. Marred and polluted. All of it. The source of every evil in the world. Death by sin. But that all sounds so remote to the modern ear, does it not? As we sit here today, 2023, listening to these words, these things that occurred thousands of years ago. 
It's one man, Adam. What is that to me? The sinner might justly ask. Well, we see the extent of this sin. Many were made sinners. Here's the real problem tonight. If it was only a matter of Adam disobeyed and Adam sinned, but actually the rest of us were okay, we wouldn't have this problem. This is the real problem. Many were made sinners. Not simply that there was a man who sinned many years ago, but the man who sinned many years ago stood as the representative of the human race. We need to get our heads around that tonight to understand sin. Adam didn't sin for himself. Adam sinned for the entire race. We're told here that many were made sinners. Really the idea is simply this. Every single person who is related to Adam by way of posterity, by ordinary generation. Let me put it like this. Every man and woman who was ever born of earthly parents. If you have a mother and a father you are guilty of sin. You're guilty of Adam's sin. That explains the extent of sin in the world, does it not? The word that's used here, made, made sinners, it's not the, the usual word that we come across that's translated made. It means rather to constitute or to appoint, to deem someone to be a sinner. It's the same group of people that was in view in verse 18 that we read. Therefore, as by the offence of one, judgment came upon all men. It's the same group of people. It's all men. Every one of us constituted sinners. It's further explained in verse 12 where it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You see the problem here. It's not just that we're guilty of Adam's sin. And that we're enough to damn us. As the catechism puts it. We sinned in him. And we fell with him in his first transgression. But the problem is. Not that we are merely constituted sinners. Because Adam sinned. But we are made sinners. We have all sinned ourselves. As a result. You might object that it's not fair that you're deemed to be a sinner because of Adam's sin. But my friends, you cannot object that you have not sinned yourself. Is it not true that you have sinned? You are guilty of Adam's sin. That is perfectly just in the eyes of God because Adam sinned as a representative of every one of us. But as Babink, Herman Babink, the theologian he puts it like this simple words Adam sinned consequently sin and death entered into the world and hold sway over all because Adam sinned and you inherited his guilt you went on yourself to become a sinner to be a sinner to act like a sinner to think and behave like a sinner to incur the guilt of your own sin as well as Adam's. Adam and Eve, they were the, the root of all mankind. And as a result, the guilt of their sin and the corruption of their nature and the resulting death that accompanied that, all of it passed on to all who are in Adam. 
As the Apostle Paul puts it in another place, in Adam all die. Why is there death at all? You know, if you deny the existence of sin, my evidence to you this evening that sin is a real thing is the existence of death in the world. This problem then, friends, this evening is a serious problem. Every man, every woman, every child, every single one of you in the gathering tonight, you are condemned to sin and to misery and to death. You bring your sinful nature with you into this world. You inherit the guilt of Adam, our first parent. And why? Because he stood for the entire race. You know if Adam had succeeded? If he hadn't sinned, if Adam had obeyed, we would have been made righteous in Adam. Does that sound so unfair? If Adam had succeeded, he would have succeeded for the whole race. But Adam failed, men and women. And he failed for the whole race. And every single one of us are made sinners. Why is there misery in this life? Why do people die? Why are some people born with disabilities? Why, do, why is there infant mortality? Why do these things exist? Why are there evil people in the world? Why do we have natural disasters? Why do we have accidents, tragedies? Sin is the problem. That's the reason why. If there was no sin, there would be no death. If there was no sin, there would be no wickedness. If there was no sin, you would have no guilt. But Adam sinned. And as a result of Adam's sin, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the point of all this? Well, this evening, you're outside of Christ this evening. If you're a sinner this evening, don't think of yourself as being relatively innocent compared to others. Yes, there are wicked men in this world. Don't hold them up as your comparator. Don't, don't convince yourself that you're relatively good. Some may be less guilty than others. But all are guilty. All have sinned. You have sinned. And as we have seen, because of the inclination of your heart, the sinful nature that you brought with you into this world, you are guilty of every sin that you've never committed. Even if you were capable of living from this day forward with, with no sin at all, friends, you have already sinned. You have a condemned sinful nature that you brought with you into this world and you have sins of your own. That's the problem then tonight. You are a sinner. You are guilty. Oh, friends, if the text ended there, but it doesn't. Because in the second place this evening we see the substitute for the guilty sinner. As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. There's a so. There's a but. The name Adam is simply the Hebrew word for man. 
Christ is described as the second man in 1 Corinthians 15. And hence, whenever we have here this one man's disobedience and many made sinners and one man's obedience, what's in view both times here is a man. There are two men. There's the first Adam and there is the second Adam. Adam failed. The first Adam failed. And as a result, there is no longer any way for fallen man to keep the covenant of works. This do and live was the test. And Adam failed the test. The probation was failed. All that is wrong with the world, we've seen it. It comes from that moment in time when Adam refused to hear. But now we read, there was a second Adam. But what is required of the second Adam is of a much higher order than what was required of the first Adam. Think about it. After the fall, after Adam's disobedience, after he sinned, now the whole world is corrupt. Now there is suffering. Now there is weakness. Now there is death. Not only that, human nature has now incurred guilt. No longer innocent, but rather it has incurred the guilt of sin and it has incurred the penalty of the curse of God on that sin. So now mankind stands not only guilty of sin, but in a corrupt world. No longer capable of doing good, where before they were capable of doing good and capable of doing wrong. And so we see that we, when we come to Jesus Christ as the one who would be obedient for others, we see that that substitutionary obedience is well beyond what was expected of Adam. The task is infinitely greater. Christ's obedience, as it's spoken of here, is, is viewed really as a single act. It's spoken of as uh, we have the, the disobedience. By one man's disobedience, we know that Adam's sin was a single act. There might have been lots of sins going on in that one act, but it was a single act. When we speak of the obedience of one, likewise, we're viewing all that Christ did for mankind, all that he did for his people, as being viewed all as one single work. But it can be considered from two angles. We see his obedience in keeping the law as the substitute. And we see his obedience in paying the penalty as the substitute. Solving the problem, frankly. His obedience in keeping the law. We read that it was by one, by the obedience of one. And that word obedience, it's the complete opposite of the disobedience. It's a perfect fit for the problem. All of the solutions that, that man is hunting for, for their own problems, and all they ever find is an inadequate solution to their own problem. Or here is a perfect fit for the problem of mankind's sin. The exact match for the first Adam is the second Adam. One who must do what Adam failed to do. The substitute for the first Adam who failed. Here we have him in obedience to the command of God. This do and live was Adam's command. This do that others might live. 
That's the command that was given to the second Adam. The word obedience, it's really a word that means attentiveness or a ready compliance. You see how it's the perfect opposite. Instead of that unwillingness to hear, now we have a readiness, an eagerness to obey, a determination to obey. There's another place where the obedience of Christ is spoken of. His obedience to the will of God in Hebrews 5 verse 8. There we read, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And when it speaks of Christ's suffering, it's a reference to his entire earthly ministry, his humiliation. But when it says that he learned obedience, it doesn't mean that he was in some kind of ignorance or some kind of disobedience before and he had to be trained to be obedient, trained out of it, the way we school our children. No, what's in view with learning obedience is that he had, as an incarnate deity, with human flesh, capable of suffering, capable of feeling pain, capable of death, now he had the opportunity to experience obedience to a law to which he owed no obedience as the lawgiver. So all of Christ's earthly life was performing this act of obedience as a substitute for those who failed in Adam. His obedience in keeping the law, but we also have his obedience in paying the penalty. This obedience of Christ, we read of it in Philippians 2 verse 8. Here's how it's put there. And being found, speaking of Christ, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Now death is a consequence of the fall. We've seen that by now I trust. And death comes to every man and woman and child. Every single one of us will suffer death. Will experience death. It's happening all around us. People are dying every second of every day. But this death. This death was no natural death. This death was no accidental death. The death of Jesus Christ was an obedient death. It was a death that was penal. It was paying the price of sins that did not belong to him. Paying the, the, a, a price for sins that belonged to others. Sinless. Spotless. Yet suffering the penalty of sin. Suffering as sin. As we read in another place, he was made sin for us. Oh, you see, if ever, if ever there was to be a single soul saved. If ever God wanted to go through with the plan of salvation, if I can put it in those terms, then this was absolutely necessary. That one would come that would pay the price of a sin. One would come that would discharge the debt. Not only the debt of obedience that we owe to the law. But the debt of punishment that we have already accrued by not keeping the law. For the debt of sin that we owe because of the curse that fell upon Adam. And so we have the substitute for the guilty sinner. Obedient in life. Obedient in death. Christ, 
as a substitute for the guilty sinner. Sinner in the gathering tonight, I don't know where you stand with God. The person beside you doesn't know where you stand with God. You might even deceive yourself as to how you stand with God. But God sees your heart tonight. And he is telling you from his word this evening that you owe a debt that is beyond your capability of ever paying. See it, friend, an eternity in hell will not discharge this debt. You're incapable of living a perfect life. Have you ever tried it? Have you ever tried to be perfect? Then you know what I'm talking about. You're incapable of paying the penalty for sin. You see, you have no way now, friends, to fulfill the covenant of works. This do and live, that's beyond your reach. It's too late. Adam failed. He failed when the circumstances were all stacked in his favour. You see, you have guilt. Tonight, as you sit here, you have guilt that Adam never had. You're guilty of sins that Adam never committed. This world around you this evening is full of temptations and is full of evil and wickedness that Adam didn't have in the world around him whenever he disobeyed God. And the top of it all, your own flesh is corrupt. Your own flesh wants to sin. Adam's flesh didn't want to sin. He had no inclination towards evil. Plus, pile it all on, friends. In your own assessment of yourself, every single sin that you've ever committed. None of which can be undone. None of which can be deleted. Through any effort, through any work, through anything that you can do in and of yourself. You are, this evening, beyond saving yourself. You're hopeless. You're helpless. You're a hell-deserving sinner. But Jesus Christ, the second Adam... Oh, sinner friend, he is the substitute for guilty sinners. He had no guilt of Adam's first sin because he was born of a virgin. He had no guilt of his own sin because he was God's. He was sinless. And he was obedient unto death. He kept the law in every point, though he owed no obedience to his own law. He paid the price for the guilt of sin that was not his own. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about. But finally, we have to see as we close that salvation is the solution to the problem. Salvation is the solution to the problem. So by the obedience of one, Shall many be made righteous? All of the troubles of mankind, all of the woes of this life, 
all of the damnation of the next life. All of it meets its answer in the salvation that was accomplished by Jesus Christ. There's two things just to see as we close. We have the extent of salvation. There's that word again, many. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. The change from verse 18 to verse 19 in the word used. It's all men on to justification of life in verse 18. And here we have many being made righteous. It doesn't mean there's a lower number in view. In fact, the idea of the word many is not about limiting numbers at all. It's not about counting at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's talking about being countless. It's speaking of a great multitude, a great number, an innumerable company. It's a word that's saying to us tonight that grace is greater than sin. In fact, is that not what verse 20 says? Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Just as every single one who was represented in Adam was made a sinner, so every single one who is represented in Christ is made righteous. That's an, an, in an innumerable company. That's countless millions of souls, friends. Does that sound like too many? Friend Bobbing again, he puts it like this. Challenging words. Scripture is not afraid that too many people will be saved. The message of the gospel, the message of salvation, is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save a vast multitude of sinners, countless millions, from every age, saved from eternal ruin. That's the extent of this salvation. Look at the effect of it. We read that the many shall be made righteous. Being made righteous, yes, it includes the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that we are declared, constituted to be righteous because Christ was righteous. But it also goes beyond that and as a result of the consequent change in heart when we are made righteous in Christ Jesus. We are then producing righteousness. There's a change in the life, a change in the heart that works its way out through the life. We have the uh, Thomas Boston. He speaks of the four states of mankind. When Adam was created, he was perfect, but he was capable of sinning. After he fell, he was now incapable of doing any good. That's our state tonight if we're fallen sinners. In our natural state, outside of grace, we are incapable of doing good. Then when we are redeemed, when we're saved, when we close with Christ in the offer of the gospel, when we're regenerated by the Spirit of God, now we're capable of doing good. But we're still capable of sinning. But then finally, finally when our salvation runs its full course, here we have the saints of God in heaven glorified and incapable of sinning. Because what Adam failed to do, Christ succeeded in doing. It's declared righteous then, this 
being made righteous. There's those two aspects to it. There's a justification that's spoken of. In the eyes of God we are now just. We have been reconciled to God. The guilt has been removed. If you're a child of God, this is true of you tonight. This is what the gospel does. It justifies sinners. It removes the guilt of sin. Verse 10, it says, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Verse 11, it goes on to talk about the atonement. By whom? By Christ, we have now received the atonement. There's the guilt removed. There's the, the penalty of sin paid. But there's this other aspect to it. That we are made to act righteously. A change of heart. An instant change of heart. Which is seen in that gradual working out in the life. For the child of God this evening. Hearing the gospel afresh. This is meat and drink for your soul. Turn it over in your mind. Meditate on it. Think of the significance of it. Think of the completeness of it. Think of how incapable you were of saving yourself in your natural state and what God has done for you in Christ. Let that energize your soul. Let it grip your heart tonight. Don't let it go. Don't let it slip from your mind when you go back to work tomorrow or when you go back to school or when you go back to your duties in the home or when you go back to your communities. Keep that thought in your minds. You're saved. Let it sanctify you. Let it change how you behave in all your other duties. Let it draw you out more and more unto righteousness. That's what Paul does next in chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. He says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So use the doctrines of the gospel. In order to increase your love for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. That's the message to the child of God tonight. <laughs> but for the sinner. You wonder about the problems in this world. You've maybe said it yourself. How can there be a God? Whenever you see such evil and such misery. Whenever you see children being murdered. Whenever you see all sorts of wickedness being done. Whenever you see natural disasters. How could there possibly be a God? Look at all the problems in the world. What sort of God would allow such a thing? Friends, sin is the problem and not God. It doesn't prove that there's no God. It proves that everything he has told you tonight is true. It's all revealed in scripture. It's not hidden from us. God doesn't pretend the world's a perfect place. He tells you that it's not. He tells you why it's not. He tells you how that problem has become your problem. And he tells you what the solution is. Salvation by way of Jesus Christ as the substitute for the guilty sinner. Jesus Christ taking the place of Adam and doing what Adam failed to do. Jesus Christ taking the place of the sinner in life, living, perfect obedience. Jesus Christ taking the place of the sinner in death and paying the price for your sin. For you tonight then, sinner, I trust by now you have a grasp of your helplessness. 
then for you all that remains is this. Receive Jesus Christ as your saviour. Receive Jesus Christ as your substitute. Surrender to him. Surrender your unwilling, disobedient heart to him. And rest in that salvation. That obedience of one by which the guilty sinner such as you can be made righteous. May God deal with your hearts tonight. Let's stand for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank thee, O Lord, that there ever, ever was a plan of salvation. That even before man fell, the problem was solved. O oh Lord, we look to thee now. We pray for individual problem hearts in this gathering to be solved tonight. We pray for sinners to be arrested in their sin. To be wrestled to the ground as they try to solve problems that aren't real problems. And they will be brought to see their personal problem of sin. And they will be rescued as brands from the burning. And O oh Lord, for thy people, O oh, take the doctrines of grace and apply them to their hearts and strengthen them and embolden them in the gospel and make their lives to be a beacon of light for what can be done when the second Adam passes the test. O oh Lord in heaven come, have mercy on us. Forgive us, Lord, for those things that are said amiss. And take those things that belong to thee and apply them by the power of the Holy Ghost to every heart. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our final psalm this evening is Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We'll sing from verse 1 to 6 of this psalm and perhaps after the singing of the psalm if I could call on the Reverend Stuart Farms to give the benediction. Psalm 51, we'll sing from verse 1 to verse 6. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. After thy loving kindness, Lord, have mercy upon me. For thy compassions great blot out all mine iniquity. Me cleanse from sin and throughly wash from mine iniquity. For my transgressions I confess, my sin I ever see. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. In thy sight done this ill, that when thou speakest, thou mayst be just and clear in judging still. Behold, I in iniquity was formed from the womb within. My mother also me conceived in guiltiness and sin. Behold, thou in the inward parts with truth delighted art, and wisdom thou shalt make me know within the hidden part. Psalm 51, singing from verse 1 to 6 to God's praise. <coughs>
farms, please. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.